So it is, God, that we come to you this morning asking for you to speak to our hearts. We, your servants, are listening. Speak, God. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1 as we begin a new series through this, I think, wonderful book. Not only wonderful because it's inspired by God, but wonderful because of the timing of its message that is more relevant today than maybe any other time in our adult lives or our lives as children or teenagers this morning. I think there's a temptation for us as followers of God to to think to ourselves, because God is so holy, He is so transcendent, He has so much to care for, that God must sort of outsource the the minutia of our life to His angelic ambassadors, to the circumstances of life around us, or even to our decisions. There, there is a temptation to think of God as this vast CEO over billions of people who doesn't get mired down in the muck of civilian life. If, if you've ever been tempted to wonder, does God care about the minutia of my life? Does God care about the details of my life? But boy, do I have a story for you this morning. Boy, do I have a story that is found uh, nestled away in this sort of out-of-the-way part of the Bible. Four chapters stuck between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. If you're flipping through your Bible, it's easy to even miss it. But the very power of this story is a power that I pray resounds with your life today. When I think of Ruth, it really is a, is a, is a play that is given to us in four different acts This morning in Ruth chapter 1, I want us to see two scenes. Imagine that you've gone to a play today. The lights have gone down and the curtains begin to be drawn back. And you see scene 1. Scene 1, a grief that unfolds. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 reads, In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The historical setting of the book of Ruth is found right here in verse 1, the days when the judges ruled. What is Ruth talking about in here, or the author of Ruth talking about here? All you got to do is turn to verse 25 of Judges chapter 21. It's just one page over to your left, and there you'll begin to see what those days were like. In the days... There was no king in Israel. And notice the relativism of that day. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The land in the day of the judges was a dark time in Israel's history. It is a time where we can say it's the worst of the times without the silver lining of the best of the times to even it out. It was a time of national disunity, civil war and strife, cruelty, division, apostasy. It's all there in the book of Judges that comes right before the book of Ruth. It is the worst of times, but it is a reminder that God is still at work even in the worst of days. That God still is at work even in spiritually barren lands. 
that the rebellion of God's people that we read about in the book of Judges, the division of God's people that we read about in the book of Judges, it does not thwart God's sovereign plan and His sovereign purposes that He is going to enact in and through the book of Ruth in a cast of the most unlikely of characters. They enter the stage right into the play that we know to be the book of Ruth. And one after another, we uh, see them, starting in verse 2, we read, the name of the man was Elimelech. This is the patriarch of the family. The name of his wife, Naomi, the matriarch of the family. The names of his two sons were uh, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephorites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. One funeral. Patriarch dies. These two, the two sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of one of them was Orpha, and the name of the other is Ruth. They lived there where, I remind you, Moab for 10 years. So let's be reminded of the setting here. Elimelech and Naomi are in Bethlehem, and the irony is that Bethlehem means, you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. But because of the disobedience of God's people, God has sent a judgment upon the land, and there is a famine in the land. So instead of the patriarch of the family, instead of Elimelech getting on his knees, repenting on behalf of the country, along with his other citizens there in Israel, he says, hey, I'm headed to Moab. Now, it's not far on the map. I mean, it's an Alabamian going to Georgia. It's an Alabamian going to Mississippi. But spiritually, what Elimelech is doing here is he is saying, I am leaving your plan and I'm taking my destination into my own hands. Moab was an arch rival of the Israelites. The Moabites are descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. They are arch rivals and enemies. In the book of Judges, the Moabites come into Israel and and they invade and they rule over them for 18 years. So it is absolutely significant that Elimelech and his wife and their two children go over to sojourn in the land of Moab. They meet two wives. Now it's easy. It's easy for us to, to miss the significance of this. Most of you in the sanctuary who are married, you, you didn't marry your fourth grade elementary school sweetheart. So, so we're used to marrying outside of our own hometown. We're used to marrying outside of denominational backgrounds. We're used to, to transcending uh, socioeconomic and, and quote-unquote class distinctions. We, we bring that together. And oftentimes we think of romance, we think of marriage as sort of endless options for us in 2020 in America. We, we know that's not true. It's not true, but we feel that that is true. Not so here in this story. God has clearly said, you Israelites, do not marry those from foreign lands. Do not intermarry with the Moabites. Why is this forbidden? Because when they marry outside of their people, so they're introducing false gods into the pure worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
we see this. This is one of the reasons later on in the story where Solomon takes so many wives from these foreign lands and we see the Israelites, we, we see them at one of the lowest parts in their history because of what we see right here in this story. It's free of charge here, but we got two wives, Orpha and Ruth. Now, I know you're sitting here wondering about this, but let me just kind of fill you in here. Orpha, uh, 1954 in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, there was a young lady that was born whose name was Orpha. Her siblings, instead of calling her Orpha, they called her Oprah, and Oprah Winfrey was named after Orpha in the book of Ruth. Hey, free of charge. That's why you show up on Sunday, right? Eight years of seminary, and that's what I can offer to you right there. So, okay, back to the story right here. As we're following along, the family sits down for a family portrait. Elimelech and Naomi, patriarch and matriarch of the family. We've got uh, Malon and we've got Kilion with Orpha and Ruth. They snap a picture, and we've got six. And you don't even get two verses until that beautiful Christmas portrait is cut in half. Elimelech is dead. Naomi's two sons are dead. And there's grief upon them. Tragedy has befallen Naomi. What do we learn in this first scene? What do we learn before the curtains shut? Well, it's a reminder that God's sovereignty prevails even in the midst of human tragedy. What God allows, he redeems. This is the story of these four chapters. Now, Naomi doesn't know this. She, she doesn't know this. Naomi doesn't know what is going to occur in, in chapter 1, verse 4 here. But what we know is that what God allows is God will redeem. Now, it's easy for us to get lost in the details of this story. Has God punished Elimelech through his death? Are these two sons, have they been punished through their death? I, I'm 100% sure of my answer. I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Yes, there are consequences for disobedience, but in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Ruth is not inspired to give us the details and what, what God doesn't tell us in his word. I, I'm not interested in trying to speculate, so I don't know. But this I do know is that in this story, it is a beautiful story of God's redemption of the tears of this mother and wife. It is God's beautiful redemption of the story of, of a wife by the name of Ruth who, who buries her husband and, as you saw in the video, is headed down the road to another wedding ceremony. What God allows, God redeems. Naomi doesn't know that in verse 4 of Ruth 1. Ruth doesn't know that in verse 4 of chapter 1. And maybe you're here today and, and you're walking through tears. You've traveled through tears. You're in the midst of, of the uncertainty of, of what's befallen you. And, and in this moment, it very well may be that months down the road, you're able to see how God is working good in the midst of, of tragedy, in the midst of difficulty. But maybe it's not months, maybe it's years you're able to see a glimpse but for most of us in this sanctuary, we are not privy to God's divine plan. It will take the clarity of eternity for us to fully see how God is working good in the midst of our tears. He doesn't promise you 
nor does he promise me the insider information of his providential will. You're not promised that this side of heaven. But what I am sure of is the promise that he works all things together for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Naomi and Ruth, as this scene begins to to shut. And as the curtains are closing, there's nothing but tears in this moment, but it is a reminder to us when, when the economy takes a downturn and there's a loss of a job, God is still sovereign. When you can't quite relate to to a teenage son or a teenage daughter and you're praying them back from that foreign land and you don't see how God is answering right now those prayers, God is still sovereign. When there's uncertainty before you and you don't, you're not able in that moment to trace the hand of his divine providence, trust that you are in his hands of his divine providence, even when you can't trace the details of how he is writing the script of your story. Lights dim. Curtains close. And all we hear are the tears of a mother, a wife, and her two daughter-in-laws. Scene two opens. I I imagine the lights come back on, the curtains are pulled back. It's a scene that I've entitled A Grief Observed here. I imagine on on one side of the stage, you have Ruth, the daughter-in-law. On the other side of the stage, you have Naomi, the daughter-in-law. In the center of the stage, you have Naomi. So Orpha's on one side of the stage, Ruth is on another side of the stage, the matriarch, the mother-in-law, Naomi's at the center, she's looking out, sort of into the darkness of the crowd. Ruth is looking this way, Orpha looking off in the other direction. We begin to make a little bit of sense of their conversation. All we can really hear are tears and and the sobbing of of grief that is upon them. But in verses 6 through 18, we are able to make out their conversation that goes a little bit like this. Naomi, she's confident that there's no good before her. She calls Orpha, she calls Ruth together, and she says, go home. Leave me. There is nothing that I can give to you, even if I am to have children. There's no way that you will be able to marry them. It's that unique conversation that this mother-in-law is having with her two daughter-in-laws in the midst of grief. She says, almost like, a, like someone shooing away a, a stray cat. It's almost as if Naomi says, get on, get on, go, go. Orpha and Ruth, at first, there's a consensus. We're not going to leave you. Not what we have been through. We're, we're here with you. Naomi, she insists. And finally, Orpha, one of the daughter-in-laws, she relents and she leaves. And there is in this scene the, the spotlight shining upon a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, Naomi and Ruth. And we hear their conversation, some of the most beautiful words in all of the Old Testament. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, 
I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The first words of Ruth are words of absolute allegiance. The words that we hear of Ruth are are words of faith fidelity to her mother-in-law, faith in the God of her mother-in-law. We hear the words of the mother-in-law, the words of Naomi, and the words of Ruth are two scenes that that really give us a, a, a portrait of contrast between how people respond to grief. Ruth responds by, by turning to her mother-in-law and even turning to her mother-in-law's God. But notice the way Naomi. Naomi says, well, hey, look, if you're going to stay with me, We're headed back home. I heard that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is a place where we can find bread. So they're headed back, and then we read the scene of Naomi's response in the midst of grief, right here in verse 19 of Ruth 1. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? At least 10 years ago, she left with a husband. She left with two children. And grief will shape you. Grief will wear upon you. Grief will will transform you. And this grief-stricken widow, mother who's buried two children, she's unrecognizable to those that knew her well. Is this Naomi, they asked? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It means bitterness. For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Notice in this passage here, Naomi's honest response to grief. Notice in this passage that Naomi is not censored by God. That Naomi, in this passage, she expressed her, her honest anger toward God and even to these people who are welcoming her back home. She's pushing them away. She holds her fist up to God and is saying to God, you did this to me. You brought this calamity upon me. Notice in this passage here that Naomi, she shows us a way forward in grief that is a way of honesty before God. There's nothing that is a stained glass, sanitized version of of Naomi's response. There's nothing that's cleaned up about Naomi's response. She's holding up her fist. I think so often we as Christians, we we have this viewpoint of how we should be in the face of loss, in the face of sorrow, in the face of grief. And and it has a whole lot to do with hallmark cliches more than it does the actual uh, narrative that we receive in Scripture. We open up the Bible and we read the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We read the book of Ruth and we, we see the, the honesty of one. So often we feel that we've got to clean up our act before we talk to God. That there's no place for uncertainty. There's no place for anger. And actually we feel that there's real no, really no place for honesty before God. But know when you walk through the paths of difficulty, when you walk through the paths of sorrow, God doesn't say to you, hey, listen, life has given you lemons. Get a little sugar and make lemonade out of it. Turn that frown upside down and show me a smiley face. That is not God's word to you. God is much more concerned with your honesty before him in the midst of sorrow than he is with your false piety before him in the midst of sorrow. God doesn't say to Naomi, okay, if that's what you're going to be like, see you later. You, you, you can handle this, Naomi. I, I will meet you down the road when you get your act together. That's not what we see in this passage, and that's not how God treats you in the midst of your sorrow. But understand that your sorrow and your grief, it can be a blinder to you. And that's another truth. We have to hold these in balance. Our sorrow and our grief, it can distort our view of reality. We see this with Naomi. Naomi is saying, she is saying, I went away full and I've come back empty. And we say, no. No, Naomi, that isn't true. You have come back to the provision of God that is providing food for you, even in the midst of this famine. You're coming back not alone. You're coming back with a daughter-in-law who has stood beside you in the midst of unbelievable grief that you have experienced. Yes, you feel as if you're coming back empty, but no, you're not. And grief can do this. Grief can distort our view of reality. And our feelings about the moment at times, can be the, the only interpretation of the moment that we listen to. And grief, it can blind us. Yesterday, we had kind of sort of torrential rain, especially in the morning. It's not a good time to be caught in the middle of a run yesterday morning. But you know when you're in these Alabama thunderstorms and you're on the interstate, and no matter how, what setting you have your lights set to, no matter how fast you have your windshield wipers going back and forth, there, there are times where the rain is so heavy upon you that you just cannot make headway of what feels to be five feet in front of you. You know the road is ahead of you, but you can't see the details of it. Grief, it, it can be that kind of thunderstorm experience for you. It can blind you the reality around you. It did for Naomi, even in the midst of her honesty and transparency before God. But we have in this scene, the second scene, we have Naomi's reaction to grief, but we have it in contrast, her daughter-in-law, Ruth's her powerful 
I think full, F-O-I-L response. She becomes that full to, to Naomi here in this story here. And we have another response to grief that is a powerful response in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is probably one of the more famous passages of the book of Ruth. Where do you hear this frequently? You hear this frequently. I've never heard it here at Dawson, but growing up, I would hear pastors oftentimes use Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 as, as a passage for a husband-to-be and a, and a wife-to-be in their marital ceremony. And it always struck me as sort of odd because this is a daughter-in-law talking to her mother-in-law, but needless to say, that's, that's neither here nor there. Back to the passage at hand before us, it is a beautiful expression of commitment because Ruth, in her moment of grief, do you notice what she does? She turns to her mother-in-law and she turns to her mother-in-law's God. And in the midst of grief, a path forward is always a path where we turn to God and we turn to others. Naomi pushes people away. Naomi isolates herself. Ruth leans in, surrounds herself, loves her mother-in-law in the midst of this, of this moment of grief, and then ultimately she turns to God in the midst of her grief. This is Ruth's conversion. Now, it's not a, it is not a New Testament conversion. This is not a Saul becomes Paul. But what we see right here is this powerful moment where Ruth, this Moabite woman, is saying, Naomi, where you go, I'm going. Your God's... oh." You're telling me there's only one God? You're telling me there's only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, if, if that's what you believe, then that's what I believe. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. I'm hitching my life to you. It's in this moment that her allegiance to her mother-in-law becomes this sort of antecedent to a Christian conversion. And we see Ruth say, this will be my God. And I just want you to see that in the midst of grief, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty, it is always the answer to turn to God. There's always the temptation. There's always the temptation to turn away from God in the midst of your grief. It is always the temptation to push people away from you in the midst of your grief. It, it's as ancient as the story of Ruth itself here, and it is as contemporary as the story of your life and of my life. But note here what Ruth did not know, that while it might be the natural temptation to blame God and to run from God, the answer to our grief is never to isolate ourselves from the community of faith, but it is to lean upon God because we realize in the midst of our grief, we experience a greater intimacy with God than we've ever experienced before when we turn to him in the midst of our grief. Because we're turning to one who is well acquainted with what we are experiencing. You know this, don't you? We've all been in that situation where a well-meaning loved one, 
a well-meaning friend in the midst of, of the grief that we're experiencing comes to us and says, Honey, I, I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly how you feel. And, and they do it out of a well-meaning spirit. They, they do it to provide comfort. They do it sometimes because we just don't know what to say. But in that moment, you always feel, well, no, you don't. No, you, you, you don't know what I feel. Because you know they don't. But follower of Jesus, know that when you turn to God, that you're turning to a God who knows exactly how you feel. That, that the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So this approach the throne of grace with boldness to receive help in our time of need. Do you know that God in and through his son has walked the ultimate mile in your shoes, in my shoes? There's no part of the human experience that Jesus himself has not walked through and upon the cross was laid upon him. So every sorrow, every pain, every alienation and separation and discord that you feel Jesus has walked it before you. So, do you know what it is to lose a job? And to experience disappointment? Know that your Savior has experienced disappointment. Do you know what it feels like to be misunderstood? Misjudged? Know that Jesus, your Savior, was misunderstood? Do you know what it is to lose a relationship and grieve that? Do you know that Jesus, in his greatest time of need, looks around and sees none of his disciples? Jesus, your Savior, knows what it is to be betrayed in his greatest time of need? Do you know what it is to be rejected? Jesus, your Savior, has felt rejection. Do you know what it is to grieve the loss of a loved one? Jesus, your Savior, in John chapter 11, he shows up at a funeral. And Mary and Martha, they come to him and they say the same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would not be dead. Jesus says to them, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you know what else Jesus does? Jesus wept. Do you know the feeling of being in a moment where the last thing that you want to do is show your emotions? Do you know what it feels like to try to hold back the tears, but they just gush forth? Your Savior knows the feeling of tears floating down His cheeks. The lights go dark. The curtains are closing. There's Naomi, isolated and alone in her grief, in her mind. And there's her daughter-in-law, right beside her. A hand on her back, 
turning to her and turning to her God. The curtains are closing, but the question still remains, who are you in this story? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you knowing that the story of Ruth is a story full of real human emotion. True, real story that intersects all of our stories. Not all of us are in a season of loss and grief, but all of us have traveled this road before. All of us will travel this road before. And it is a wonderful reminder that we have a Savior who's well acquainted with grief. So we lean upon you, we turn to you in the midst of our grief, knowing that you truly and you alone truly understand what we're walking through. We thank you, God, that in all the ways that you could redeem this world, you've redeemed it in a way that gives us comfort in the midst of sadness, that gives us comfort in the midst of death and loss, because your son has walked that path. So we lean upon him, we turn to him, even now, even today. Remind us at the very depth of our soul this powerful truth, even this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.